Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU. As we record this episode, President Joe Biden has ordered new sanctions against the military regime in Myanmar, if you can call it that, uh, newly installed. Uh, in relation to a military coup d'etat that has seen the army take over and political leaders such as Aung San Suu Kyi and others taken into custody, among them, of course, Ms Chi's Australian economic advisor, Professor Sean Turnell. The US president has used an executive order that will stop Myanmar's generals from accessing US about $1 billion uh, in assets in the United States. Biden added that more measures are to come, apparently. This seems like an appropriate action designed to pressure the military and send a clear message without unnecessarily harming the people of that Southeast Asian country. But here's a contradiction. Also, as I speak, the United States Senate is hearing an impeachment charge against Donald John Trump for trying to reject a lawful election result and inciting an angry mob to sack the Capitol as it was certifying his duly elected replacement. This, the second impeachment trial of that disreputable president, itself a record, presents the GOP with a clear moral test and lays bare American moral authority around the world. Joining me to discuss the trial and associated issues is the wonderful Dr. Jennifer Hunt, formerly of ANU and now a non-resident fellow at the US Studies Centre. Now, two other things I did not know about her beyond her stellar academic achievements is that she is an alumni of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she was the captain of the women's sabre fencing team and she holds a private pilot's licence. So, Jennifer, welcome back to Democracy Sausage, to the hot plate. You're literally a former sabre rattler. Indeed. I think this bodes well for my future career, National Security Scholarship. Um... That's right. I mean, National (laughs) Security Scholars are always talking about, you know, just dismissing certain things as mere sabre rattling or or, or as, you know, provocative sabre rattling, and you've actually been 
rattling sabers. That's I, right, you I can you spell may be the correctly. first. Mm. And what is is it's that fencing? A B R E. For those listening, <laughs> that, that's good to know. Well, I'm, I'm surprised the Americans don't spell it S A B E R um, as they do with center and 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 a few other things. But um, uh, is that literally fencing, like normal fencing? Yeah. So there are three weapons in fencing. Most people are familiar with foil, uh, which mm, is a very yeah. small target. Yeah. Um, it was meant for, uh, in lieu of real duels that killed people, you would just yeah. sort of scrape them on the side. Yeah. Saber is built on practicing for cavalry. So your target is from the waist up, including your head, and you slash, don't right. point the weapon. Right. Lovely. It's quite brutal. Women weren't allowed to do it until the 90s in the United States. Right. And you got uh, got quite adept at it. I did. In, uh, in American universities, you take a class in every department – and you also take physical education classes. So I took fencing as a PE and the coach, Coach Miller, who retired just recently after 50 years as a fencing coach, encouraged me to apply uh, and try out for the team when I was a walk-on. And, and you were the captain. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's amazing. Uh, and th- the other thing I mentioned is that you're also a, uh, you know, you fly, you're a pilot. Yes, I... Um, in what kind of aircraft? Light aircraft, uh, single engine, single engine like high, you know, high sort of wing. Cessna type, yeah. Right. Yes, uh, a kite with an engine, basically. I learned on a Cessna 152, and as a student pilot survived uh, um, an engine failure on takeoff, which oh, aside really? from a fire is the That's worst thing that That's actually one of the you. worst, yeah, because you haven't got much airspeed exactly, and much elevation. Exactly, and they spent a lot of time telling you and convincing you through math that you can only lead straight ahead, and straight ahead of me was Interstate 85. Really? Yes. <laughs> this is a fantastic story. So you actually had an engine failure. You have, how, how high off the ground were you? I was about 900 feet off the deck, so just below the pattern. And just below what, sir? Just the pattern. So you fly above uh, 1,000 feet right, above see, yeah. uh, ground level. Right. And but I at least had... you've got enough elevation at 900 feet to... To, to get some glide speed, presumably. Yes. Yeah. you. Each aircraft has its own glide speed. So they tell you to aviate, pick a best field, and then communicate it to the ABC. And, and they do a lot of these drills. Yeah. Um, so it, it didn't come as a shock. There was profanity involved, but more than I was inconvenienced and didn't want to appear on the news when my mother was already worried about me. So <laughs> um, the long story short, I made it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, spoiler yeah. alert. You're and here, yeah. I <laughs> just ended up getting on the horn. Pilots are very helpful, you know, they so everyone participated in trying to help me troubleshoot what was wrong with the plane. There was a crack in the manifold pressure, basically a hole in the engine. Yeah. Um and so we got back down to the ground by clearing the air traffic and uh rebooting, turned everything off, turned everything back on. <laughs> now, obviously we didn't come on to have you on to talk about this, but I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by this sort of stuff. Here's a qu- I've never had a chance to ask someone this question because I've never spoken to someone who's actually been in one of these kind of, you know, in- incidents, one of these sort of moments that, uh, you know, very dangerous. Were you calm? As I've often heard, you know, when you hear the um, flight box recordings sometimes of cockpits uh, of, of, of uh, pilots during an incident, uh, it's amazing actually how calm they often sound when they are facing a circumstance that is so, you know, ordinary people would find so frightening, quite rightly so. Do, do you remember being calm? You said you were communicating with the tower. Yeah, I remember just thinking, well... Shit. <laughs> can we say that? I might no, no, we can say, no, we can say that. No. Um, this is a barbecue. We can say whatever we like. And, um, and, and, yes, they do a lot of training with you in the air. Uh, so when you're, uh, when you're uh, with, your, uh, with your pilot, with your instructor, um, you know, they might point to, oh, what's that over there? And they just turn the engine off on you. Okay, right. now what happens? 
So you do a lot of those practices so that yeah. you're prepared. Yeah. That's a, that's a horrible thought in itself. <laughs> I mean, because the, well, the engine has to start again. I mean, they're taking something of a risk even at that moment because every engine that's turned off <laughs> well, yes, may it's, not it's restart. Well, yes, it's true. Yeah. Um, but I had a very good flight instructor and he taught me well. And as they say, you know, most pilots only have one engine failure in their career. So I've got mine behind me. Yes. Yeah, they don't them, bother to tell you whether it's because that, exactly yeah, whether yeah. they survive or not. But that I imagine might be most the reason. Yeah. It's one of those sort of statistics that, uh, you know, bears a bit further examination. <laughs> Now, luckily, you didn't crash and burn, but the presidency of Donald Trump did uh, eventually. It took a long time and uh, caused a lot of pain for for the country and and uh, has brought a lot of you know negative attention on the US, of course. It's and and the, you know just the tragedy of of Corona. I mean, we could talk about that forever. But um, just tell me, what, what, where do you think things are up to at the moment? And we've got the uh, as I just made that point before in the introduction about the you know. U.S. kind of lecturing Myanmar about a coup, and it's presumably, if the numbers aren't there in the Senate, as we expect they're not, about to let its own former president off for attempting a coup. Absolutely. Just for a recap and for posterity, uh, the January 6th attacks um, were basically a violent mob. Um, They convened in Washington, D.C. after months of Trump promulgating the date, telling everyone to show up, telling everyone that they were trying to steal their votes uh, on the basis of voter fraud allegations he's been promulgating for the last four years. Uh, So a violent mob uh, appeared at the rally. Cell phone data tracks them directly to the Capitol building after he tells them to go. Um, They are seen in multiple angles of footage because they were filming a lot of this themselves, chasing representatives through the halls, calling out their names, presumably for the gallows that they constructed outside. Um, they discarded the United States flag that was hanging at the Capitol and tossed that aside to put up a Trump flag, which I think is a terrible metaphor for what's happening. Mm. Um, and throughout the, you know, a couple of hours, they basically looted, vandalized, robbed, defecated in some of these offices. Uh, more than a hundred Capitol police officers were injured. Two, uh, one, um, will lose an eye. Two have thus far lost their lives. So this is the first time in 200 years that the Capitol building has been breached. Uh, the last time was the red coats. This time it was the red hats. Now, let's sort of look at it from the point of view of let's, let's be devil's advocate here and say, okay, um, the argument is that, that Trump incited this action and the defense essentially is that um, he used a lot of inflammatory rhetoric. He, you know, uh, he... he Spoke about things which, uh, which led to uh, the you know the actions that these rioters took, these uh, these these um, invaders of the capital took, but he didn't explicitly tell them to do it. That in fact he never had in his mind that they would actually be violent, literally. And so when he talks about fight, you know you you can't show weakness and you've got to fight. He's He's talking in, a, in metaphors rather than literally. I think that's um, a gracious interpretation and not in keeping with the last four years of Trump's rhetoric. There's a long body of jurisprudence that talks about incendiary rhetoric and where it leaves. Uh, that you don't have to give a direct order. You just have to suggest and you're, you're still culpable, right? Mm. Uh, Charles Manson never murdered anyone himself. He just insinuated to his followers that they should do so. Uh, Trump told people to fight. He told them that he won in a landslide in all 50 states. Mm -hmm. He told them there would be no God without him. He used every tool he had available as commander-in-chief and chief magistrate 
to make sure that this crowd was out for blood. And I think the discount has a long pattern of behavior um, just encourages this type of action to continue if there is no accountability for Donald Trump trying to overturn the results of the election, then then every incumbent will try it. Every contender will try it. Now, that's the argument. Uh, it sounds very sound to me, of course. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't need any persuading on this point. But um, that's the argument for continuing with it. There are a lot of Republicans and there are some neutrals who think that as bad as all those things are that he did, he's passed into history already. He's no longer the president. Uh, it's a, devi- a divisive act to, you know, continue pursuing this. From Biden's point of view, it's a distraction when he's got so much to do. Uh, it's taking up activity. Um, so, so that that is the best argument, though, isn't it? Though that that um, you can't establish a precedent where an outgoing president during that lame duck period decides to ignore the election result and incite an angry mob to sack the Capitol. Absolutely. These actions took place while Donald Trump was president. He was acting in his capacity as president. The insurrection took place during his presidency. Just because Mitch McConnell has delayed the trial until a couple of weeks after inauguration doesn't mean that there's no accountability and culpability required. Right. And the, there's the other issue, of course, as well, which is the possibility of him running again because he's only served one term. Absolutely. The Constitution has two remedies. Um, so... Uh, After a president has been impeached, of which Trump has been impeached twice, he was impeached two times while in office, the two remedies are removal from office, uh, which the voters already did. Uh, and the second is a bar from running for office again, a which, lifetime which, ban. And that's a separate motion, isn't it? Yes, and that only requires a simple majority. Right. So the first one to, to for the Senate to uphold the impeachment, is that, is that the correct terminology for to it? To convict. To convict. Right, so he's been impeached by the by the House of Representatives, and that's happened twice because yes. it happened in relation to the Ukraine. Both uh, in terms of electoral interference, I might add. So the first was to extort an ally using military aid to sully his uh, political opposition hmm. in the United States for the upcoming election. Hmm. The second was to overturn the election results, hmm. which saw that opponent succeed. That very same opponent, indeed, yes. Um, and so he, so the Senate is now considering th- uh, whether to convict. Even if it does convict, first it needs a two-thirds majority. So that, given that we know it's a 50-50 Senate, that means that there's 17 Republican votes needed, Republicans that need to join with the Democrats. Well, technically, it's only two-thirds of those present. So if uh, a certain true, num- that's right. Two-thirds of those present rather than two-thirds of the That's right. If a certain hundred, number yeah. of Republicans decide this is not worth their time or they're not going to participate in what they've called a charade and a hoax, they just need to stay home that day. Well, can we take anything from the fact that there was the procedural question initially as to whether the Senate would even hear this, um, and that got up 56 to 44, as I understand it. So that's short of the two-thirds, but it is it did, did show some Republicans supporting the trial. Absolutely. And keep in mind that this is not a regular business of Congress. The Senate 
takes a special oath to act as jurists. It is incumbent upon them to hear the evidence presented and make a decision accordingly. So when we see these senators and the camera panning around, watching them uh, take notes, doodle, look away while footage is being presented of the day in question. Um, I remember in the last insurrection, uh, sorry, in the last impeachment trial, you had senators passing around fidget spinners, not taking this seriously. <laughs> That's hardly uh, a vote of That confidence. was the Senate Intelligence Committee chair um, and my representative in North Carolina, Richard Burr, mm. of Burr fame, uh, the last uh, member of that family in 100 years to run for office. Right. The only other Burr I know is Raymond Burr, but I think he was Ironside, wasn't he? Oh, okay. <laughs> I was thinking more of the Hamilton Burr <laughs> genre. Okay, so let's just go back to the uh, to the trial itself. Um, because it's interesting. I was watching Representative Madeline Dean uh, from uh, Pennsylvania and she was laying out in a very, I thought it was excellent, you know, spectacularly calm, methodical case that she was laying out for why this amounted to presidential incitement to an insurrection. Um, now, she's not in the Senate, so that tells us something about how this operates. I think an Australian would imagine that the Senate trial would be prosecuted by senators, but that's not the case. No, because the senators are jurists. They're jurors, indeed. So the House acts as the prosecution, essentially. So these are the House impeachment managers. Yeah. And have you been watching it? Have you taken any of this in? I mean, obviously, you, as you were saying, you've seen them looking around when vision's been shown. Because they're using a lot of audio visual aids, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The world was a witness to this event. They don't need to prove that some dodgy deal happened behind closed doors. This was out in the open for everyone to see in real time. All right, let's take a quick break there and come back and continue this discussion. 
were to vote to convict? Well, I think Mitch McConnell's message right after the insurrection was quite strong. Finally. Finally. But that didn't stop more than 100 members of Congress from still voting against certifying those same election results that were, you know, sort of the rationale. I know this is an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that you had those remarkable scenes, that, that extraordinary violence, and it was genuine violence that actually resulted in five people losing their lives, as you said before, and, and others being injured, and, and, and the threat, the genuine threat of, um, of violence and loss of life of, mm. of members of Congress. Uh, extraordinary measures were taken, and it was um, you know, total, totally wild scenes. And yet, on that same day, uh, the Congress gets back together and continues the process of certifying, and Republicans vote against certifying the votes for Joe Biden. I mean, absolutely. That I mean, is, I, that I is vindication, isn't it, of the of the insurrection? I, I was quite shocked that they came back so quickly. I understand the message that they wanted to send, but keeping in mind that the night before, the same group that ended up storming the Capitol held what they described as a mass spreader event of COVID. Mm. And so True, that was yeah. my main concern when all of these, the representatives of the government mm. are now potentially exposed to COVID. They were all sheltering in one room. Some of, some congressmen, of course, refused to wear masks. Others were tweeting out in real time the location of mm. key personnel whose mm. names were being chanted by the insurrectionists, yeah. um, holding weapons and zip ties. And so I thought it was disturbing on multiple levels. But then for them to act on those conspiracy theories, on that disinformation Uh, you know, about some stolen election, Um, for them to vindicate and validate that that conspiracy theory with their own votes, I think, is incredibly dangerous, not just for this particular event of reckoning, but for the future of the Republican Party and American democracy. One of the things that's being said, as well as, you know, the argument that Trump didn't literally incite them to violence, he just did so figuratively and people took him literally, um, was that, uh, you know, the the um, entreaty he made to various electoral officials around the state to, in the case of, I think it was Georgia, to find him the extra votes. I can't remember how it was. 11,000. 11, yeah. Um, that that was just a figure of speech. Just a know. figure of speech. Well, the Georgia uh, authorities are now opening an investigation. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. Uh, the county. So there's a criminal investigation the, yes, going on there. for tampering with an election result, uh, intimidation of election officials. Yeah. This is the President of the United States calling an election official, telling them to find a certain number of votes for him. And in previous times, if this rather unimaginable set of circumstances had arisen, uh, most of this stuff would have happened behind closed doors, but this President actually left fingerprints of his actions all the way through. I mean, he did a lot of what he did uh, in speeches and on Twitter, on social media. And so it's all on the record, all of these these various entreaties to to people to uh, ignore mm. the election result and to Absolutely. take back their country. And- dozens of announcements, uh, dozens of tweets. He spent $50 million in ads um, in the lead up to the day talking about what, what they were going to accomplish. Um, if Mike Pence didn't stop this from happening, then, then Trump's violent mob would. And keep in mind that he's been using this for fundraising the whole way through. $200 million he raised between the election already being called for Joe Biden and on January 6th. The only reason that stopped is because the vendor that was processing those payments cut him off. They cut off his um, apparel shop. They cut off um, those payment processing. And I think what's interesting about 
the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection is corporate America standing up and saying, this is bad for business. Yes, well, we saw that with the social media giants um, who uh, Facebook and, and Twitter in particular, you know, the, uh, the attempt to police to some extent fact or truth, uh, which was happening before then, but then closing off his accounts. And so, yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it, that people realise this sort of mayhem and uh, presidential uh you know, completely criminal behaviour really, uh, has been devastating for business. Absolutely. And so I think we're seeing corporate America sort of step into the breach in a more timely fashion. Um, and uh, you've got major Fortune 500 com- companies that have cut off the Republican Party entirely. They started with those who voted not to certify those election results and said we will not be contributing to those campaigns. But others offering sort of a blanket ban on the Republican Party. These are these are big companies. Um, and so I think that also sends sends a very powerful message about accountability. Does that do you think that will turn up in uh, or fail to turn up might be a better way of putting it in terms of donations to the Republican Party? Absolutely. The, you think it will? I think it will. I think we're seeing a couple of signals. None of them on their own, but Together, these data points do paint a picture. So we see corporations stopping donations to the Republican Party. We see voters changing their registration from Republican to either independent or Democrat in some of these key states in which their votes were voted to be overturned. Can Um, can I just stop you there and ask you to explain for particularly Australian listeners? I mean, we have listeners all around the world, of course, but um, uh, just that what what is registration? Because I think it'd be good to explain that. I mean, we don't have voter registration in in Australia in terms of registering as a Labor voter or as a coalition Mm -hmm. voter or as a One Nation voter or whatever it might be. Yes, and I'm I'm constantly touting uh, the benefits of the Australian system in that regard. But the United States has uh, a a state-by-state registration system. This normally happens when you get your license. It's called motor voter laws. And so when you sign up to vote, they'll ask, which party are you affiliated with? Most people pick one of the two. Um, For a while, there was independent or unaffiliated. Some states have minor parties. These, this data is used in interesting ways. It's used for um, for targeted ads. The voter rolls can be purchased um, by political parties or even individuals. Some of them are purchased freely available from the state? online. Absolutely. Right. So it's a revenue thing from yes. the state's point of view. In, in, in part, right? It allows you to target voters uh, in particular parties. Uh, even your own party who might not have voted in previous elections, you can get access to that data. It doesn't, it doesn't presume... It doesn't tie you to a particular vote. Oh, no, though. absolutely no. not. Really what it means for some states, it dictates which primaries you can participate in. Right. right. So when we have Democratic primaries, only Democratic members can participate in choosing who the nominee for that party will be. It's also used in other state functions like jury selection. Right. So for one, I discovered this um, quite by accident when I lived in Baltimore. I was apparently the only Republican who lived in Baltimore. So I kept getting called for jury duty. <laughs> and I finally called I finally called the clerk and I said, what is happening? <laughs> None of my friends are getting these. Um, I'm getting them every couple of months. Uh, and said, oh, you're, you're a Republican. Just change your registration. And I never looked back. <laughs> never looked back, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, you may be the first person I've had on here who said uh, I'm a Republican. I uh, was a Republican. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm, I'm not we'll, let's not go into that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm independent. Too. I have never I'm contributed a to a political party or candidate and have no conflicts of interest. Thank you. I'm a big Republican. Um, so, the, the, so the trial goes on. What's in the minds then of the Republicans who, let's assume there are a number of Republicans in the Senate who 
understand the constitution, who understand the moral plane here, who understand the, the, the legal arguments here, but who nonetheless are either planning not to vote or to vote uh, to acquit. What, what is, can you unpick that for us? Because uh, obviously they've got, they're either, what are they scared of, of, of having Trump funded candidates run against them, of disendorsement of, uh, we see what's happening to Liz Cheney, for example, the, 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 um, Republican who voted in the House for, um, for impeachment. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Liz Cheney has been sanctioned by her state party back in her home state. So I think that is an example of what some Republicans might be concerned about. And was that done to intimidate senators? I, I'm not sure. Um, I, actually, I think it's, a pretty it's just message. a signal of how radicalized the Republican Party has become. And, you know, I think we're seeing that more and more with these conspiracy theories being the rationale for violence, with conspiracy theorists being elected as Republican representatives, like Majority Taylor Greene, um, who was just recently stripped of her committee assignments. She was on the Education Committee, despite having spent a fair amount of time harassing and stalking uh, school shooting survivors as crisis actors. That was all a hoax. Uh, so I think we're seeing... She's got some pretty kooky ideas. Oh, the list goes on and on. The, the program isn't long enough to call you know, <laughs> to cover all of her conspiracy theories. But these kind of uh, narratives are being welcomed into the Republican Party, and anything that goes counter to that is rejected. Just as Liz Cheney's argument was that this was sedition and insurrection and has mm. to be held, um, has to be held. There has to be some accountability for it. I will note, however, that there's not a clear split in the party. Liz Cheney did not vote to strip Majority Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, arguing instead about process, which is the same sort of thing we see in the Senate now. Some people argue about process rather than the merits of the case. And so I think there are a couple of considerations here for senators. One, their own political futures. If they think they're going to be censured at home, if they think they're going to be primaried at home. But for the in, in those instances, people who are retiring should should ha- be open to voting on the merits of the case then as, is McConnell as one a of juror them? is. Is McConnell one of them or is he going Mitch to go around McConnell again? has said a few times um, that that this might be his last run. But the man has spent, this is, I think, his 40th year. He, he, he's not in young, Congress. And he's, he's not the fittest looking, most alert looking bloke. I've no, seen. but they're vaccinated. They're immortal now, Mark. So, um, <laughs> 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 um, keep in mind, we have gone as far as a 102 year old senator in US history, uh, Strom Thurmond from South yes. Carolina. So, yeah. There's a precedent for staying in. And just, elect, <laughs> and just elected a 79-year-old president who had ex-presidents, three of them at his inauguration. One of them, of course, famously wasn't there, Donald Trump. But all three of the ex-presidents dating back to mm. the 90s uh, were younger than the guy being inaugurated, even now. Even now, which is why I think uh, Kamala Harris was an important pick mm. um, to bring the Gen Xers in, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think senators have a couple of considerations, their own political fortunes. I think some of them uh, in private conversations say they're intimidated by the base. This is not the first violent mob we have seen attack Capitol buildings in the last 12 months. No, that's right. So we had state capitals, state legislatures that were targeted by anti-lockdown protesters, some of them armed. Um, at the behest of Trump. He told them to liberate Michigan. Later, a plot was uncovered that a militia was trying to kidnap and ex- execute the governor uh, that Trump had targeted. Um, you had them uh, using Nazi slogans to intimidate the Jewish governor of Illinois. And people instance. were wearing Nazi uh, slogans in the insurrection. In That's the, in right. The- you had Camp Auschwitz shirts. Um, 
just just despicable. And, and to anyone who might be confused about, you know, the merits of the case or the rationale for violence, I find a very handy guide is to say, whatever the side, whatever the Nazis are on, whatever side the Nazis are on, if I look to my left and I look to my right and I see Auschwitz shirts and swastikas, I'm on the wrong side. Mm. Exactly. It's just my rule of thumb. I think it's a reasonable rule. I mean, when in doubt, (laughs) we'll run away from the swastikas. (laughs) Don't join them. Yeah, absolutely. So, your tip for where this is going to go is it the same as, I guess, the orthodoxy, which is that it doesn't look like the numbers are going to be there? I mean, it might be a fool's errand to be putting you on the spot here because, you know, by the time we, some people are listening to this, you know, the, the result may be known. But normally in a trial, a wild card would be the evidence, the witnesses, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, you would imagine. That's all on the table now. Yeah. So I think it's only about the people. M- most of that evidence is known, though, already. Absolutely. Right? It's the, about, the world it's was about, watching. Yeah. Uh, the participants themselves live-streamed it. There, there, is some, there has been some talk that there'll be additional vision shown through the um, laying out of the evidence vision that we haven't seen so far, some, some of which has been gathered from participants. And I think there's also financial data that's come to light about Trump's financial participation um, and links to his participation in this effort. What about Um, the possibility of testimony from people who were with Trump, who were part of the Trump administration and were with him on the day? Because, uh, Because I've heard talk that he, not only was he watching it, but he was enjoying it. Now, I don't know whether that's, uh, I don't know whether that's actually been, you know, established, proved, um, well, uh, him and his family were definitely that. doing little dances at the rally just before. And, mm. of course, mobile phone data has tracked the mob moving directly from that rally into the Capitol building. Well, and that was his instruction to them. Yeah, Absolutely. He, he told them as far back as the uh, presidential debate, stand back and stand by. Mm. Stand by for my orders. What we're seeing thus far are opening statements. Now, we're seeing a lot of footage because... There probably won't be testimony. There won't be witnesses because that requires uh, a supermajority vote, and they're not going to get it. Yeah. The same with potentially subpoenaing Trump. That would require too many votes. Yeah. That's whose testimony I would like to see. Trump's. Trump on the stand. The only time we've seen Trump uh, testify under oath was in, uh, I believe it was in a financial matter uh, from a bank. And I think given the last impeachment of, of Clinton, for instance, was based almost entirely on perjury, that would be an interesting avenue and one that would be uncontestable even for Republicans. Indeed. Now, let's just very quickly in the few moments we got left move on to Joe Biden. Just get your thoughts on, on, on the range of tasks that he's trying to prioritize now. I mean, he's obviously been pushing this $1.9 trillion um, stimulus package, uh, which has, has come up against uh, some considerable resistance. Um, Republicans arguing that it sets income thresholds too high for federal assistance, that it's too much in aggregate at $1.9 trillion. Um, he's also, you know, we're accelerating and trying to coordinate what was a debacle, a shambolic lack of process really in the rollout of vaccines. Uh, and he's trying to reframe... American foreign policy or, or re- re-establish American prestige and global participation, if not global leadership. It's a big, it's a big dance card. It's, it's a big plate. I wouldn't want that job. Uh, so I think the Biden administration is probably going to focus on three priorities, um, fighting COVID, fighting climate change, and fighting corruption. 
I think those are the, those the, are three, the three pillars, the three C's. But those are all huge tasks. What I think we're going to see in general is this administration move back to science and evidence-based policymaking uh, and having experienced people at the helm, um, people who are not advocating for the very departments they're leading to be dismantled, for instance, as the Trump administration did. So I sleep more soundly. I don't know about you. I don't automatically reach for my phone at 4 a.m. to check what the latest tweet is from President Biden. Uh, no, and no, what ally no. It, he well, has well, put no, offside. Exactly. It's not. It's not. It's not just basically madness the whole time. That said, one of the criticisms that's been made in relation to the point you just uh, just asserted then about uh, re- return to order and having actual you know people who know what they're doing with the experience in the field, and I've made this point myself, but. One of the counterpoints to it is that uh, there's a sort of return to the past that uh, with uh, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and a number of others that have been, um, obviously John Kerry, various others that have been part of previous Democrat administrations are now in key positions again and that this will um, you know, take the administration back to some of the problems that in a sense fueled Trumpism fueled the kind of populist reaction. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we've just had a four-year vivid demonstration of what happens when you put the apprentice in charge of, you know, bureaucracy. And, 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 and dilettantes in charge of just about everything. Exactly. I mean, none, none his, of those people his had son's wedding planner in charge of housing in New Jersey. So <laughs> I think it's not necessarily a bad, a bad thing that people who are competent and experienced and have dedicated their lives to public service are... are are in public service. Do you think that they will be better for their experience, like as in um, not just in the sense that they've done the job before so they know what it entails, but will have thought about some of the things that weren't done as well as they could have been? Or, you know, they'll, they'll be, they'll be, I think a lot of us would say if we could do a job we'd done, you know, two or three positions ago, we could do it better now. I think one of the useful uh, tactics that's been deployed is that people aren't being put back in the same departments that they have the previous experience. They might have been in Homeland Security, and now they're in state. Uh, They might have been in state, and now they're in the National Security Council. So I think that will help build better federal coordination amongst policy, that you've got people who have experience in multiple departments. And as we know, all departments become silos. Yeah. <laughs> and so to have that that experience in multiple portfolios, I think, is very useful in trying to get the federal government coordinated on these huge challenges. And do you think Australia will be changed materially by this? I mean, you mentioned climate change. It's the obvious one, really, isn't it? Um, you can feel the, the winds of change within Australian politics on the conservative side on this question. Is that the Biden effect? Perhaps. I think so. And and also, you know, I hearken back to last year around this time in 2020. I mean, the whole continent was on fire. Mm. Every state in a declared state of emergency. Before COVID, I'm, I'm sure everyone thought climate change was going to be the story of 2020. Um, and that story hasn't gone away. We're just in a brief reprieve with La Nina and this lovely weather. But this is the anomaly, not last summer. And so now that I think Australians have seen very vividly and personally the the impacts of climate change exacerbated catastrophes, public opinion has shifted. We've got demographic shifts as well. Millennials are are the largest voting block now, uh, bigger than the baby boomers who have been in charge since the seventies as, as sort of the largest voting block. So their their preferences um, as millennials are are that science based policy making moving forward on this existential threat. Um, that's a threat to the economy, a threat to their livelihoods, a threat to the environment um, in which we live. So I think we're we're seeing this government in Australia not being able to hide behind Trump anymore in mm. delaying this action. Mm. Yes, well, it's uh, going to be interesting to see uh, the extent to which other 
corruptions of our politics continue past Trump. We, you know, I've written about this in the past. You know, the um, the you know liberal use of um, spin doctors, the refusal to acknowledge mistakes, the refusal to resign uh, when uh, mistakes have been made, uh, when errors have been uncovered, uh, all of those things that really characterise Trump have have I think had a material impact on the way politics is conducted right across the democratic world. So absolutely, um, now we've seen where it leads. It, it we leads have to seen violence. where it leads. Yeah, disinformation, conspiracy theories, sloganeering as opposed to politics. You know, collapse of trust, mayhem, That's all right. kinds. It's of measured things. in lives. Yeah, not just dollars. Yeah. Well, on that very happy note, Jennifer, <laughs> it's, it's. I'm on the dystopia beat. Right. <laughs> you are, and and look, I should say this is actually your last week here at ANU, so it you're is. off to. Work I've accepted and- a, a permanent position at Macquarie University in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology. Well, congratulations Thank on you. that. I still hope to get you back on Democracy Absolutely. Sausage uh, from time to time. Uh, there is no better expert. Thanks for doing so. And thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage Extra. I will be back with another episode of Democracy Sausage uh, early next week, probably Tuesday. Look out for that. Until then, bye for now. 